Okay. Well, if you were here last week, we had a, a short message where we basically began Deuteronomy. And the goal this week is to finish chapter 1 in woo, a few minutes. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do uh, basically just a little review of what we did last week, and then we're just diving right in. So what we're doing, if you weren't here, we've basically, uh, we're looking at the book of Deuteronomy, and we have been looking the last few weeks at the background. We looked at Genesis through Leviticus, uh, I'm sorry, Genesis through Numbers, because you have to understand what is happening in the narrative to, to grasp what um, Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy, so we can understand uh, the purpose and the intent of the book. Um, and so we talked last week at the very beginning. We're looking at these first four chapters, which is basically uh, the beginning of the, it is the first exposition. Deuteronomy is three different expositions by Moses on the plains of Moab. As the Israelites are staying there at the Jordan River, about to go in and take the land, they'll do that under Joshua's rule. But this is Moses' last three sermons. He is uh, doing this because the Lord has commanded him to do this. He's giving Israel, the new generation, the second generation, what they need to understand the covenant that God has made with them so that when they go into the land, they can be faithful to him. And they need to see, um, they, they're learning from their parents' uh, rejection of, of God's law and, and what their parents did and had to wander in the desert for 40 years. Uh, and he's uh, encouraging them or admonishing them to not repeat their parents' mistakes, to uh, submit to the Lord, to follow his law, and to take the land that he has given to them. And we'll get into that in a second. So this first, the first four chapters are basically Moses' first exposition. And we talked about it being very historical. The first chapter that we're looking at right now is basically uh, he's recapping Israel getting from uh, Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, to uh, Kadesh Barnea, which is on the southern border of the land of the Canaanites, uh, where they could have, if, if that would have been the Lord's will, taken the land after an 11-day journey. But because of their uh, fear and they're not trusting the Lord, uh, they, they um, decide it was too big to take. And so God says, well, then you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years as the first generation dies, and I'll lead your children into the land. Uh, and so that's what the first chapter is all about. Chapters 2, chapters 3 basically cover that 40-year wandering. It's just a little quick two chapters to say this is what happened in the last 40 years. And then chapter 4 is him saying we're about to go in. And here's what you must know. And that takes us into the, the next exposition. So that kind of gives you a little summary of the, the, the near big picture. And last week, we got through the first five verses. We started into the, the Abrahamic covenant, but I didn't really uh, do it well because it was like, we're trying to get out of here to go see Shane's thing. So we're going to start there this week. But last week, we talked about the precision of the exposition. Moses, in these first four verses, tells everyone, or, or, or basically, he, he, we see through his words here, where they're at, what time it is, what they've been through. I mean, he gives a, um, a, a very precise um, uh, intro on uh, what is going on, what he's saying, and where they're at. I'm not going to go through all of that again. We t- looked at different maps of where they're at, what the Araba is, where they've come through, uh, the whole Kadesh Barnea thing. Uh, we talked about the Red Sea and what Suf is. We talked about what the way of Mount Seir is. Again, when you understand all of these things, it helps you to get a good picture of where you're at and what's going on so that the words make more sense. And you're going to see these words pop up over and over uh, in, in uh, the, the narrative in Deuteronomy. And if you go back and read um, uh, Genesis, or basically Exodus through, uh, through Numbers, uh, but we don't have time to redo that today. You have to go back and listen to last week's lesson to get all of that. If you want pictures of all the maps, I can send them to you. I know there's a few people that requested those last week. But the point of all that was to get us here. So we see what Moses is doing. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, the month of Shavat in the Hebrew calendar, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all the Lord had commanded to give to them. So Deuteronomy is what the Lord commanded Moses to give to the second generation so that they could go in and be faithful to him. Does that make sense? It's, and it's not a new law. It's, it's a re-articulation of the law. It's an exposition of the law that was supposed to be uh, stated to Israel every seven years once they get into the land. When they get into the land, Joshua was supposed to go to Gerizim and Ebal and do the same thing, basically read Deuteronomy again and call them to obedience. Then every seven years after this, this is to be read, this is to be renewed, and the next generation every seven years is to say, we will follow him and to do that thing. And so you, you see very quickly in the narrative they don't. 
First generation does it, great. After that, their children fall away from the Lord, and it was pretty much downhill uh, from there. But all that being said, that's where they're at. First day, the 11th month, they're on the plains of Moab. Moses is speaking to Israel. He's telling them everything God wants them to know, the second generation, before they go in. And at the very end, it says, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying, and that's where, like I said, the exposition or the sermon begins. And so the first thing that Moses does in chapter 1, verses 6 through 18, is he reminds them of the Abrahamic covenant. He tells them, this is why this is all happening. This is happening because God told Abraham hundreds of years ago, I will give this land to you and your descendants forever. It's an everlasting, unilateral, unconditional covenant that God must do because God cannot lie, he cannot exaggerate, and he will do what he declares he will do. And he does this out of his love for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so the very first thing that Moses does in, in this uh, exposition is to remind the Israelites of what is going on. You'll see this over and over. God's not giving them the land because they deserve it. It's not because they're powerful. It's not because they're good. It's because he said to Abraham, I'm giving you this land. And because this is a part of a big, big plan for him to eventually send his son through the nation of Israel to die for the sins of all of the world so that all of us, both Jews and Gentiles, can be saved. And we're experiencing all of that right now in the church. But pulling it back, what Moses needs to tell the second generation, what they need to know, is what is about to happen is in God's hands. This is about God's faithfulness and about you being faithful to God. It's not about you being strong enough to take the land. It's not about you punishing these people because of their sin. This is about God punishing a group of people for their sin, about God giving you land because of a promise that he made, and about God's will and God's design for history. The job of the Israelites is to trust what he says and to be faithful to do what he's called them to do. And again, this is, good, this is a good point just to, for application. This is never for the church to do. God does not give you the command to go and take the land. This was something he told the first generation to do right here. Again, people take Old Testament narratives and Old Testament descriptions all the time to make prescriptive uh, commands for the church that do not apply at all. There's many things in here that are going to be implicit and that we're going to have application for us as we understand the character of God. We see what God has done. We see the things, the implications for us. But this is for the second generation of Israel to go and take a physical piece of land that God is handing to them in his timing because of a covenant he made to Abraham and because this is his will. Does that make sense? And so that's always important to understand. So let's read it real quick, and then I'm going to stick to my notes so we can get through this. It says, The Lord our God spoke to us at Horeb. Horeb, by the way, is Mount Sinai. Same mountain. I think we talked about this briefly last week. If you see the word Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain, or the mountain of God, all the same place. And it's where God showed up to Israel to basically begin the nation. You know, give them the law, say, you are my people, I brought you out for this reason, and you should be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation for me. So the Lord God spoke to us at Horeb, saying, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. So this is the end of uh, uh, Leviticus, the beginning of Numbers. So they've been there for almost a year, and now it's time to move, okay? He says, turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites. So this is into the land of Canaan. To all their neighbors in the Arabah. We talked about that last week. That's the Jordan Rift Valley. And as they go up through the desert there and they go along the Jordan River and they, um, or up through the Arabah to get to here, they're getting to Kadesh Barnea. But eventually they're going to come around to the, the, uh, the, the plains of Moab. He says, in the hill country and in the lowlands, so that's the mountains and the valleys, in the Negev, that's the desert, by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites. So that's the land I'm going to give you. Again, specific area with a specific group of people occupying it currently. And Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have placed the land before you. Go in and possess it. So again, this is the Lord's faithfulness. I've put the land there. This is my land to give to you. Their job is to go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers, and then names them, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to them and their descendants after them. And so the first thing that we see here is this is the promised land that God swore to give to Abraham that he is now giving to uh, the Israelites. 
Again, we talked about this as we looked at um, Exodus through Numbers, the faithfulness of God, him rearticulating this covenant over and over. Um, the, uh, there was a quote by Peter Craigie. I think we missed this last week. I can't remember where we left off, but he says, For the renewal of the covenant described in Deuteronomy, the prologue recalls not only the covenant's history, that's what's going to happen in these first four chapters, but also the ability of the Lord of the covenant to fulfill his promise. This is good to remember. The reason I put that quote in there is because you've got to remember that. This is about God's faithfulness. This is about God doing what he said he was going to do. And he's reminding them, this isn't about you, it's about me. You need to trust me, and you must be faithful to me. That's, that's still, see, that's, that's the direct application to us as the church right there. That we must trust what he has said and be faithful to do what he's called us to do. Uh, it says, what God has done in the past, he could continue to do in the future. There is thus a presentation of a faithful God who is, whose demand was for a faithful people. Uh, so like I said, I think that's a really good quote to remind ourselves of what is going on here. So the Lord is speaking at Horeb. This is referring to the end of the time there at Mount Sinai at Horeb. Um, and, and he's talking to them about the covenant he just made with them at Horeb and reminding them that if their faithfulness to that Mosaic covenant is going to, to have implications on the, the promise that he made to Abraham in taking the land. And so, um, uh, basically, uh, th- yeah, I threw this in there real quick. When he talks about Horeb, basically that's in Exodus 19 and 20 when God shows up on the third day of the month after they've come out of the land of Egypt. Uh, Israel's camping in front of the mountain. There it is, the mountain, the mountain. Moses goes up. And God tells them, if indeed you obey my voice, keep my covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant he's making with them right there, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And so Moses goes on to expound the law there, or basically not expound, to, to give the law that God is giving to him there at Mount Sinai in the, in the, in the narrative in Exodus. And this is a conditional covenant. If you obey, you will be. If you do this, then, then you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But then he is going to tell them, but if you do not obey, I will still use you for my glory. And, and all of the world will know that this is my land and it belongs to you. But your lack of faithfulness will bring about these curses, which will cause you to kick out of the land. And, and he will be glorified whether they obey or don't obey. Does that make sense? And we learned that, again, through the narrative of the Old Testament. We see that even the nations come along and they say, why is this land desolate? And it's because God's people did not obey him. Um, but he still will be faithful to do what he told Abraham he would do before he made them the nation of Israel. All that being said, that leads us to, to what he started talking about. He says, you're here to take the land. If you look back at the verse that we just read, and I think I told you this last week, as you're reading the Old Testament and you see the land, the land, 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 land. Like land is a marker. This is talking about the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the land, the nation, all the earth uh, being blessed by the Lord. All that is always talking about the Abrahamic covenant that God promised that to, to do through the nation. Make the nation of Israel, put them in the land, bless all the earth through them and their descendants. And that's always Abrahamic covenant language. Uh, when he talks about them being as numerous as the stars and all that, we'll talk about that in a second too. You always think back to this covenant that God made with Abraham. So here you got land, 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 land. We talked about this already as we did our real fast Genesis overview. But just to give you some of the snippets of the Abrahamic covenant, you know, God called Abraham out in Genesis 12, said, go to this land, be a sojourner in this land. In Genesis 13, uh, the Lord said to Abraham, after a lot had separated from him, he says, now lift up your eyes, look from this place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. So again, everlasting, unilateral, unconditional covenant. It, it's God's land that he's giving to Abraham and his descendants forever. Uh, in Genesis 15, uh, when he ratifies this covenant, God says to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land not theirs. This is talking about the 400 years in Egypt. So he tells them ahead of time exactly what's going to happen to his people, uh, where they'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. I will judge the nation whom they serve. Afterwards, they will come out with many possessions. Again, that's exactly what happened in the, in the book of Exodus. And you, you get to read the narrative and watch God do that part. 
And then he says, then in the fourth generation, they will return here, which is they're on the river looking over to there, and that's where they're going to return. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So part of their coming in and taking the land is, land is fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant that God's going to give it to them. But God's also going to use the, nation, the newly formed nation of Israel to pour out his judgment on those people that are in the land of Canaan because, for their idolatry, immorality, and the evil things that they're practicing. It came about when the sun had set, the very dark, uh, this is the, the, the sacrifice that he made. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land. And look at this. This is the first time he gives us the parameters of the land, and they match what uh, God is talking to Moses about there in Deuteronomy, or what Moses is telling the Israelites. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the, great, uh, the river Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, uh, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So this is just a bunch of the different tribes, the different uh, um, uh, nations that are in that land area. But this land area has never been occupied by the nation of Israel to that extent. Um, and I think we talked about that last week. Actually, I have a quote about that. So let's pause that for one second. We'll talk about it. But at least understand from from the... River of Egypt, the, the river Euphrates, we're talking about Israel, we're talking about Lebanon, we're talking about Syria, we're talking about a land mass that was never occupied by Israel or deemed to be the nation of Israel at, one, at any point throughout the history of the nation. The only time you could come close to saying it was during Solomon's reign as he had uh, power over all these provinces. But it was never the nation of Israel. It was never all inhabited by Israelites. That has never, ever happened to this day. So either one, it was like, God almost got it. It's so close. We got part of the land. Or he's going to do it. You know, this, this must happen. Genesis 17, again, uh, in Genesis 17, uh, this is after the, um, is this after the second? No, that's in Genesis 21, sacrifice of Isaac, right? I'm getting my chapters mixed up. Genesis 17 is after the, he talks about the covenant of circumcision attached to the Mosaic covenant. But I'm sorry, the covenant of circumcision that's going to be this uh, mark for the Israelites. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. The reason I threw these verses up there is to show you over and over and over throughout Abraham's life as God reminded him of, rearticulated, ratified this covenant. He always talks about the land. It's an everlasting possession. It's his forever. It's God's to give to him and his descendants. And then he tells them it will come through his descendant Isaac, not um, uh, Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac in Genesis 26. So he says to Isaac now, sojourn to this land, I will give you all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to your father Abraham. Here he starts talking about multiplying his descendants like the stars of heaven, which is going to come up in Deuteronomy. Uh, And he says, all the lands, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Abrahamic covenant comes through Isaac. Fast forward that. When Jacob is leaving and returning back into this land, God reiterates this covenant to Jacob. So it is Abraham through the line of Isaac, through the line of Jacob. And that's the end. After that, it doesn't go through the line of Joseph or anything like that. It's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is the covenant I made with your forefathers. And from that point forward, you know, Jacob's renamed Israel. And then it is the land of the people of Israel. Uh, But anyway, here's Jacob or Israel, Genesis 35. uh, God uh, changes his name to Israel after Jacob wrestles with God. He calls him Israel, and he says, A nation, a company of nations shall come from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. So when Moses is on the plains of Moab talking to the second generation of Israelites and he's talking about this land that, he, that God has given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this theirs to go in and take because God is giving it to him, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the covenant that God made with Abram or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And like I said, the dimensions of that land has never been possessed by Israel at any point. In Peter Craigie's commentary, he actually says, Uh, The call was to go towards the promised land. And the dimensions of this land, as described in this verse, are enormous. Virtually all of Palestine and Syria are included by these terms, an area larger than Israel ever possessed, in fact, even during the reigns of David and Solomon. So this is a land area and a land mass that belongs to God that will be Israel's forever. This still hasn't been fully given to Israel as stated in the 
promise that God made. The easy answer for us, if you just keep reading, is that this is what Christ will do. Christ will fulfill this covenant when he returns. He, the, he will reign on David's throne, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. He will give them a new heart and a new spirit uh, and bring Israel back, fulfilling the new covenant. And he will give them this land, and they will live in this land area during the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ as he reigns on earth as king, fulfilling this covenant. All these things will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Um, so that is the first part of Deuteronomy 1, is he is reminding the Israelites of this covenant and telling the Israelites it's time to go and to take the land. Then he says this. He says in verses 9 through 18, I spoke to you at that time saying, I am not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are, to this, day, or you are this day like the stars of heaven in number. Again, he's saying, God did what he said. He built us a nation. He made us like the stars of heaven. We're a numerous people group, and he's brought us here. Uh, he says, may the Lord your God, I'm sorry, the God of your fathers increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as he has promised you. Again, this is something he told Abram he would do. How can I alone bear the load and burden of you and your strife? Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered to me and said, the thing which you've said is good. So here Moses is just telling the second generation what happened during, you know, at Mount Sinai with their with their fathers, the first generation. He goes on to say, So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men. I appointed them as heads over you, leaders of thousands and hundreds, fifties and tens, and officers for your tribes. Then I charged you, your judges, at that time, saying, Hear the, hear the cases between your fellow countrymen and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen or an alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I, uh, I commanded you at that time uh, all the things that you should do. So here he's basically telling the second generation how the, 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 the nation is being governed by these judges that are over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens and how he set it up, what their character is to be, all that. It actually gives you a good understanding of, of um, you know, when we get to the book of Judges, what the role of the judge should have been or was actually uh, developed to be. Uh, again, the reference to the stars of heaven, Israel had become a large people group, just like God had promised to Abraham. Uh, even after, think about this, wiping out 603,000 of them in the first generation, they had replenished that entire generation uh, in the desert. And so again, even that is the faithfulness of the Lord. While you're wandering around in the desert where there's no water and no food, 601,000, at least men, 20 years old and, and older, are either, you know, they, they make it through or they're born and here they are, ready to go in and take the land. So again, even that's the faithfulness of God. As he wipes out a generation, he keeps the number the same as they go in in the second generation to take the land. Um, and, uh, and again, this refers back to Genesis 15, Genesis 22, where God swore to Abraham, I will greatly multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens. Again, the reference to the judges, it's just good to keep in mind uh, because the size of the nations uh, of the nation, uh, judges were needed to help govern the nation. This is what originally happened in, in Exodus 18 when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, suggested this to him, and it was a wise counsel, and Moses set up judges. But again, all those guys would have died. Uh, and so there's, there's new judges established from the second generation will, that will help govern uh, the nation of Israel as they go in. And these men will help in the um, uh, governing, uh, um, in, in war uh, and in governing uh, the nations when they establish the land over there. Um, like I said, the first generation of judges would have all died uh, in, the, in the desert. Um, and in Numbers 25, uh, you already see a new generation of judges at work because in Numbers 25, Moses actually calls on the judges of Israel. And this is at the tail end of the end of the second, first generation to go through and to kill all those people that had, that had um, uh, married themselves or, or uh, adulterated themselves uh, with uh, the, the people of Moab uh, and joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Um, and so in the Numbers in 30, you see Moses speak to the heads of the tribes of Israel. So this this second generation of judges was already established on the plains of Moab prior to Deuteronomy. And so he's explaining why he did that, is to help govern the nation. So that's where we're at. So he's saying, he told us to leave. Uh, he talks about why the, the, the government of the nation of Israel. And then he begins the journey, 
This is a narrative of the journey from Mount Sinai, from Horeb, up to Kadesh Barnea, which is, like I said, the southern part of the land of the Canaanites, where, if you, you could say it this way, they could have gone in and taken the land. Um, and so that's what 19 through 25 talks about. If you look in Deuteronomy 1, if you have your Bibles open, he says, Then we set out from Horeb. All right. So after rearticulating the land, the Abrahamic covenant, the appointment of the judges, here's what happened. We set out from Horeb, and we went through that great and terrible wilderness. Remember, if you weren't here, wilderness, in our brains you think of the jungle, but wilderness always is referring to the arid, dry desert um, over there. And so they set out through the desert, which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. That's a big place. We talked about that in our intro. Every time you see that place name, think of this story that we're about to talk about. I said to you, you have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord, our God, is about to give us. So Moses said, I told you, God's about to give this to us. See, the Lord your God has placed the land before you. Go up and take possession. God in his faithfulness, here's the land. Your job to be faithful, go take it. Uh, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you, do not, be fear, do not fear or be dismayed. Um, and so, again, going back to our map from last week, here's where they're at. They, he, he just, in those few verses, recounted the 11-day journey from Mount Sinai up to here, the bottom of the, the land, or I guess here, uh, Kadesh Barnea. And this is the, the land of the Canaanites, which will become the land of Israel. And so think about them being camped out right here. Uh, It didn't take very long to get there, and now they're to go in and take the land. Actually, if you read the narrative here, uh, if you want to mark this in your Bible or even flip over and read it, basically Numbers 10 uh, through Numbers 13, 25 tells the whole story. I mean, think about that. The whole journey could have taken three chapters. You know, it was like, it says in Numbers 10, 11 through 12, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. Then the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. So they left Mount Sinai. And then in Numbers 12 and, and 13, the people moved out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Uh, when they returned from spying out the land, so we're there. So even though it didn't say the word Kadesh Barnea right there, they're, they're in that place. They go out, they spy out the land, they come back at the end of 40 days. They proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and tell the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. We're there. That was it. So, I mean, really, from Numbers 10 to 12, that was the journey. Numbers 13, they, got, they went out and spied out the land, all of that, and they came back and brought the report. In, in some sense, that could have been the whole journey. In the same sense, it couldn't have been because what is is what is, and there is no what if, right? So, uh, but that was the journey from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, and that's what Moses is reminding them about. This is the first base camp for which Israel should have gone out and taken the land. Um, and you see a reiteration of the command to take the land. The Lord has given, uh, has placed the land before you. Go up and take possession of the land. Um, again, uh, in Deuteronomy 1, 22 through 25, uh, he begins. The, he continues the narrative. He says, so they're there at Kadesh Barnea. He says, then all of you approach me and said, let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up uh, and the cities which we shall enter. I read some commentators that just said that this is a lack of Israelites' faith. They should have just gone and trusted the Lord. Maybe. But, you know, I just think of like Jethro's counsel to Moses and Jethro is the one that told him to make judges and heads of the household, just because that was uh, um, uh, something that he suggested doesn't mean it was a lack of faith. It, you know, so figuring out a way to take the land doesn't necessarily show a lack of faith. Maybe, it, maybe this was the beginning of their lack of faith. I don't know. But, you know, spying out the land to see how to take it could have been a good plan. Um, I, I, it, the, it never says that, that this is a lack of faith that I, that I see in the word. Um, but that was the plan. He, they want to go up to figure out how to go in and to take the land. Uh, if you read the narrative in Numbers thirty-one, I'm sorry, Numbers thirteen, you can actually read the whole narrative of them going up uh, and the twelve spies going in. It says then in Numbers thirteen, verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, "Send out for yourself men that they may spy out the land of Canaan." Um, and there it says, actually, that's a good point. The Lord spoke to Moses and said this, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of the father's tribes, one among uh, each of them. So Moses sent 
from the wilderness of Paran or Paran uh, to the com- uh, at the command of the Lord, all uh, of the men uh, who were heads of the sons of Israel. These then were their names. And then he goes through and names the different men from each tribe, um, and he sends them uh, out. Uh, and it says, and when Moses sent them out to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up there into the Negev, into the desert, and then go up into the hill country. So you're looking all throughout the land. See what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which, uh, in which they live? Is it good or is it bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or are they like fortifications? So he's like, so they're figuring out what are we about to walk into? Uh, and he says, how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Um, are there trees or not? Make an effort to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. And so they went up, they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as uh, Riob and Labo Hamath. And when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, which is, oh my goodness, <laughs> Another word and another word and another word. <laughs> uh, I'm horrible at these, these Jewish cities or these Canaanite cities. Then they came to the valley of Eskel uh, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes and carried it on a pole between two men uh, with some of the pomegranates and figs. Uh, this place was called the valley of Eskel because of the cluster which the sons of Israel cut down from there. And so they go up, They actually, and it continues on, when they return from spying out the land after 40 days, they came to Moses and Aaron and the congregation at the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh. They brought back word to them, uh, and they said, uh, and the fruit of the land, and they told him, we went into the land where you sent us. It certainly does flow with milk and honey. So this is the assessment. And this is the fruit. So they're holding that, that big thing of pomegranates and, um, and figs. Uh, and they say, um, uh, I lost my place. Uh, Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, the descendants of the Anak are there. Now, actually, let me pause there because this gets into the next part of Deuteronomy. But basically, the assessment was, it's everything God said it was. It's a fruitful land. It's, it's full of wonderful things. It's a beautiful land. And so he says, we sent them out, they came back, and they gave the good report. Or, I'm sorry, they came back and gave us a good report about the land. But then, the next part of Deuteronomy is Moses reminding the second generation of, basically, the spies' assessment, the first generation's fear and not trusting the Lord, and they all began to rebel against him, to grumble and to not trust the Lord. Now this comes up as a common theme throughout the book of Deuteronomy and the Old Testament narrative of Israel. Grumbling, complaining, rebellion, and a lack of trust. Sounds just like you and me, right? Like, again, remember what Paul said. Don't look at Israel and think, man, I would have taken that land. You look at Israel and go, don't do what they did. I would do exactly what they did. I need to trust the Lord. All right? So here we have rebellion, grumbling, and a lack of trust. He goes on to say in verse 26, Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you grumbled in your tents. Isn't that where it always starts? When we're, we, we sit at home, we grumble with our families, and then we get out and we do dumb things because of what we're doing at home. And so they're grumbling in their tents, which is going to cause the nation as a whole to go, we can't do this. So just, again, remember it. When you think of Israel... Uh, apply that to yourself because the Lord hates us and he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites and destroy us. Again, is that what God did? So they're grumbling in their tents and because of their fear and their discontentment, now they're beginning to impugn the character of God. God brought us out here to kill us. God never said that. That's not his character and that's not what he was doing. But this is what happens when we sit around and gossip and slander, right? We begin think wicked things both about God and others and then we act on those wicked things because of our wicked gossip. Gossip is destructive. Alright, so but he, they, uh, it says, where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt. So again, uh, they're talking about the, the, the bad assessment of, of what, you know, whether or not they should go up. They said the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. So just exaggeration, exaggeration, which is again how we do this. And besides that, we saw the son of the Anakin there. And then I said to you, do not be shocked nor fear them. Again, truth cutting right through the fear and the dismay and the grumbling and the gossip and the complaining. 
He says, do not fear them. Look, he calls on the Lord's character. The Lord, your God, who goes before you, will himself fight on your behalf. Trust him. It's not about how big they are and how small you are. It's not about that. It's about what did he say? We must trust him. He says, just as he did for you in Egypt. (laughs) Did you forget that? Do you remember what happened in Egypt? I mean, some of you that are standing here today saying on the plains of Moab, they were 19 years and younger. You saw it. You can give testimony. You watched the Red Sea. You saw the plagues. You saw the differentiation between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And God delivered you. And you took all their possessions. He destroyed the whole army of Israel or of, of Egypt. Like, don't you trust him? Uh, and, and he says, um, he'll fight on your behalf like he did in Egypt and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. Again, it's just testimony after testimony after testimony of God's faithfulness, how he led them over this 11-day journey or or for the two-month journey out to Sinai from there up to Kadesh Barnea. God has been faithful the whole time. What makes you think all of a sudden he's going to turn the tables and it turns out he's an evil God that brought you here to destroy you? That's not who he is. That's not what he does. That's not what he's sworn. You've got to trust him. That's the point. And Moses is recalling this to the second generation to remind them your parents didn't trust him. And look at what happened. You must trust him. And you must go and take the land. Again, uh, to read the, the actual narrative of this is in Numbers 14. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but I'm going to show you an ex- excerpt of it up here. But if you go read Numbers 14, you can see the whole rebellion of the people, or the first generation. But Numbers 14, 6 through 10, Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of, of, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes when, when Israel was like, hey, we can't do this. And they spoke to the congregation of the sons of Israel saying, the land which we passed through to spy out is exceedingly good land. Look at this. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land which flows with milk and honey. Uh, honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they will be our prey. Again, not because we're powerful and strong and awesome, but because God controls all nations and all people and all things, and he's going to hand it to us. We just got to trust him. Their protection has been removed from them. Think about that. I mean, again, God makes the boundaries both of time and of, of, of territory of the nations, and he's removed his protection of these people. It's just ours for the taking. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone Joshua and Caleb with stones. And then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting. So God showed up. You won't listen to Caleb and Joshua. Well, then I'm going to show up and let me talk to you. That's what God does here. And so what God does is basically God shows up and God tells them what the consequence of their lack of trust will be for the first generation. Um, Now, all that being said, I was going to go into a little theme here on the rebellion of the Israelites, and this is throughout Deuteronomy, um, but we're just going to skip through that because you're going to see it as we go throughout. But if you, you'll just see this over and over throughout Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses reminding the second generation of the rebellion of their parents and then telling them, do not do what they did. Does that make sense? Direct application to you and me. Do not do what they did. Trust in what he says and act on what he says. In faithfulness, trust In the faith that he's imparted in you, trust him in faithfulness because he is a faithful God. So the next thing we see in Deuteronomy verse uh, 34 through 40 in chapter 1 is the curse that God pronounces on the first generation. The curse against the first. And here's what he says. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words and he was angry and he took an oath. So think about that. In the same way that God made an oath uh, with Abraham that he would do something and, and God, I mean, first thing, God is faithful whether or not he makes an oath, right? God, if he says that he's going to do it. But when he makes an oath, that's just a reminder to you and me that there is no way that this will ever not... I mean, it's just it's emphasis on the fact that God will guarantee this happens. He guarantees everything he says is going to happen. This is not a covenant, but this is just God swearing this is what's going to happen. So because of what God says here, there could not be a single person from the first generation to walk into the land. Because God's going to guarantee they all fall dead in the wilderness. He says, he took an oath saying, not one of these men, 
This evil generation shall see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot, because he has followed the Lord fully. And the Lord was angry with me also on your account. Not even Moses is going in. I think we talked about this when we were talking about the background. This does not mean they're all unbelievers. It just means they're all going to have consequences for their grumbling and their rebellion and their lack of trust in the Lord. Some were unbelievers completely. Many were believers, and they trusted him, but they didn't trust him in this sense. And so they're going to die, but does not mean that the whole first generation ended up in hell. Uh, because, again, Moses, Moses is in the hall of faith. He's a man of faith, and, and he is not going to walk into the promised land. So just remember that. You've got to understand there's consequences to unfaithfulness. And many of us are living with consequences for our own unfaithfulness. It does not mean that we're not born again. But there are some that do fall away from the Lord completely. But there's consequences because of their unfaithfulness. Uh, Caleb, though, is going to be blessed. The Lord was angry with me also, saying, Not even you shall enter. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter there. Encourage him, for he will cause Israel to inherit it. So this is the beginning of Moses telling the second generation, this is when God said it's going to be Joshua, not me. Because at the very end of this book, Deuteronomy, Joshua is going to take leadership. And then the book of Joshua begins, and he is the one that leads them into the promised land. Moreover, and look at this, your little ones who you said would become a prey, and your sons, who this day have no knowledge of good and evil. I think that's an important verse. You know, I already, I, 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 this is a Brianism, not a God thing. But I told you why I'm, we're just so, we don't want to baptize children too young. Because everyone under 20 years old was not accountable to the words that God gave them when they were there at Mount Sinai. And he even says that they have no knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't mean they weren't sinners. It doesn't mean they weren't born sinners. It's just saying they were young, and they're not being held accountable like the ones that are 20 years old and older. Does that make sense? And God just differentiates. I'm not saying that you can't get baptized before 20. I'm not saying any of that stuff. But I am saying that the Lord looks at children different than he looks at adults. And adults are held to an accountability and a standard different than the children. And God's like, I'm going to take your children and give them the whole land. But everybody that was 20 years old and older that swore that covenant or that promise to me at Mount Sinai, they will die. And he says, I will give it to them and they shall possess it. That's who Moses is talking about on the plains of Moab. That's the second generation. It's the children. The children are going in to take the land. Now, these children are 60 years old, some of them at this point, or younger. But these are the ones that either were born in the desert or were too little when God made this this declaration uh, at, at Kadesh Barnea. But as for you, turn around, set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. So now, to obey the Lord is to wander. You got, you got 40 years to die, and that's obedience. So wander in the desert for the next 40 years, and that's, that's the end of their life. And I will bring your children into the land. The only problem with that is the first generation. Um, uh, oh, this is, this is, I'm sorry, this is Numbers 14. I, was, I thought we were moving on. This is the actual oath that the Lord makes in Numbers 14. He says, I pardon them according to your word, but indeed as, the Lord, uh, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurn me see it. So again, uh, that, that's from Numbers 14. That's the actual narrative. And then this is from Numbers 14, the actual narrative of Caleb and Joshua uh, because of their trust, because of their faithfulness, they will go into the land. But I'm just going to kind of move past those to get to this last point because we're running low on battery and time. Hang on a second. <laughs> Let me plug this in too. Or we're going to lose this. All right, the very, la- the very end of Deuteronomy 1 is, uh, I'm calling this a deadly sorrow um, because in their continued rebellion, they disguise it as obedience. And the reason I wanted to emphasize this point is because, again, man, look at Israel and learn. Because this is exactly what we do. So Israel didn't trust the Lord. They didn't think they could take the land. Even though he's saying, I'm giving it to you. This is about me, not you. And they decide, we can't take the land. He's brought us out here to kill us, all that sort of stuff. And then he's like, now because of your lack of trust, you're going to wander in the desert. So what do they do? Instead of going, yes, Lord, we'll obey you. We trust you. And turn around and wander in the desert. They're like, no, 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 we'll take it now. You know? And this is what we do all the time. And I'm calling this a deadly sorrow because it reminds me of what Paul says in, 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 7, where he says, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. 
That's what should have happened. You're going to wander in the desert. Father, please forgive us. We will willingly, joyfully, happily take the consequences of, of our sin and pray that our children and instruct our children so they'll go in and take the land and trust you. You know what I mean? In a perfect world. But he says that the, um, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And I think that's what happened. They were sorrowful that they were going to miss out on the land. They were sorrowful that there was consequences because of their lack of trust. They were sorrowful that they had rebelled against the Lord, not because of his glory and his honor and who he was, but because of what it's going to cost them. So then they decided to follow God. And again, we try to do this all the time. We cover over the consequences and we cover over things and try to do this holy stuff. And we always coat our sin with holy garb so that it looks like we're doing the right thing when all we're doing is continuing to walk in the same lie and the same rebellion that got us into this place in the first place. Does that make sense? And again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, search your heart because you know what I'm talking about. It's easy to not repent, to feign holiness and to keep trying to maintain some sort of reputation, standing, whatever it is, to, 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 to keep our little kingdom intact instead of going, thank you for exposing me, Lord. Thank you for bringing me to this place. Do with me whatever you want. That's the place of redemption and change and repentance and growth and holiness. But that's not what Israel did. And I think that's still a reminder to us. It's not just, hey, they didn't trust the Lord. They didn't go in. After the consequences came, they continued to live in the same rebellion by going in. And don't forget that part too. He says in Deuteronomy 1, 41 to 46, Then you said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. Sounds good. We will indeed go up and fight. Sounds good. Just as the Lord commanded us. You know, I mean, that's a great statement. We have sinned. We will obey you now. But he's like, I just gave you a new command. The command is no longer take the land. The command was to turn around and walk back out into the desert. So what sounds wonderful is still rebellion. And every man of you girded on his weapons of war, regarded it as easy to go up into the hill country... And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up nor fight. There's the grace of God, the mercy of the Lord. Don't do this. He says, I am not among you. Otherwise, you will be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. Instead, you rebelled against the command of the Lord and acted presumptuously and went up into the hill country. And the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you from Seir to Hormah. And then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. I talked to the, with the college kids about this. This is, hey, all men, listen up. In First Peter 3, right, when it says you live with your wife in an understanding way and all that. And, and at the very end, he says, so that your prayers are not hindered. That is a terrifying verse for any man. When, when your prayers are hindered, every time in the Old Testament when God's not listening to prayers, you know why? Because he's set his face against those people in judgment. You can't treat your wife poorly and come to church and worship the Lord and think that that's going to be okay. Because he doesn't listen to the prayers of men who don't live with their wives in an understanding way and love them. And that, like I said, for any married man, that ought to be like, uh uh-oh. You know, like, I mean, but again, here's just an Old Testament example of the Lord doesn't listen to their prayers as they come before him. They're They're still in their rebellion. That obedience at this point would be turn around and walk back towards the desert. And for the next 40 years, we're just going to wander in circles until we all die. And remember, we talked about that last week. It's 103 miles. Like, that's like wandering around in North Georgia for 40 years until everyone's dead. And you, got to, and you got to die. You're not going to slide in. There's no escaping this consequence. Just walk for 40 years. Use that time to glorify the Lord and die. And then I'm going to take your children in. But No, I, I mean, well, the ones that weren't, believers did and the ones that were oh like in this rebellion well i mean you gotta that's good question and think about the theology of it so if you die in the midst of sin do you go to hell that's right if you die you're not a believer but if a believer dies in the midst of a sinful act they'll be at home with jesus christ in heaven because they were born again and they were chosen by him before the foundation of the world and they were filled with the spirit if an unbeliever dies at any point, whether he's doing something good or bad, he ends up in hell because he's not born again. And so it just depends on the state of the souls of these Israelites. Yeah. So they definitely died in disobedience to him. But to, to, to take this narrative and to determine the judgment of their soul, I don't think you're able to do that, you know. It's like what Paul 
That's right. Actually, that's a great point. Think of Israel. The first generation were disqualified from taking the land. It does not mean that they weren't believers. Uh, you yourself may be, or you may know of people that are disqualified from certain things because of their actions, habits, life, something like that. That doesn't mean they can't become a believer. That doesn't mean they weren't a believer in the midst of the disqualification. You know, sometimes the Lord reveals something that allows us to be disqualified. I mean, think about pastors and elders, right? If we're living in habitual patterns of sin or deceitfulness or something like that, we're disqualified from this office, but it doesn't mean that the person is not a believer at all. Could turn out that that person was just a hypocrite. Could turn out that that person was just making poor choices that caused them to lie over and over and over, and now they're disqualified, but they're born again. But they're no longer useful for this service, but they're not, not believers. The thing about that with the first generation, no longer is the first generation qualified to take the land. Their consequence is to die. God is the one that will be faithful. God is the one that takes care of the soul. Their children will come in, but it's no longer them that's going to take the land. They would have taken the land, but they can't anymore because they've been, that's a good way to say it, disqualified. Hang on one second. Let me finish this real quick. And uh, I do love the questions. But anyway, so he, he says, uh, so you, remain, you remained in uh, Kadesh many days, uh, the days that you spent there. And then he's going to go on uh, to talk for the next two chapters about actually wandering in the desert. And so next week we'll pick up on chapter two, talk about the wandering. And the whole purpose, though, let's pull back real quick. First four chapters, this is a historical narrative of what happened to the first generation to tell the second generation, don't repeat your father's mistakes because you're on the plains of Moab. You're in the same exact, not geographical place, but, but place uh, that you're about to go in and take the land. And the Lord is saying, I've given you the land. And this whole sermon is going to be about the land being given to you. Be faithful and take it. God's given it to you. So does that make sense? Second generation is standing in the footsteps of their fathers. They're on the other side of the Jordan River. They're about to take the land. And Moses is doing all of this to remind them, don't make the same mistakes. And then they're going to go in. All right. That's all I got for today. Next two weeks, we'll do the wilderness wanderings. What's your question? Well, again, I mean, you, got, you just got to take what he says in his word. Yeah, if you go on sinning willfully, there's no more. There's only the, the fury of a holy God. And at the same time, many men, look at Samson's whole life, and he's a man of faith. You just got to go, those who are born again, who are saved by faith through his grace, doesn't matter how we end, we're going to be with him. Yeah, there is. Yeah, that's right. And so, but that, that, I don't, I mean, again, you got controversy what is that is that a consequence of a sin for a believer and unto death which makes the most sense to me because there's no losing salvation or anything like that yeah ananias and sapphira yeah absolutely i don't know if they're believers or not but they died right there after that lie yeah yeah all good questions but remember this the one thing you got to glean from this is you can't lose your salvation and you can't be unchosen and uh and i mean god's not going to do that but you can't be disqualified in your being born again because of patterns of sin, habitual sin, or consequences of sin. That's part of it. Samson is a good example. All right, you guys can go. We'll just keep on talking. <laughs>